Um, this week will be uh, another like last week where there's just one uh, audio lecture for the two chapters. Kind of seems like as we get further into the book, um, there's less extra stuff that I want to put in because we've already talked about it. So there's less stuff that you need to bring in that I need to bring in for you from outside for you to be able to understand what's going on um, with the book. There is uh, quite a bit of extra content this time um, that has that doesn't get mentioned in the book, um, but not enough for two uh, independent podcasts, I think. So um, that's probably going to be true for the rest of the semester, I think possibly the last week might need to, um, but we'll, we'll see when we get there. Well, actually there's only one chapter for that week and then the rest is, uh, is just extra stuff I'm bringing in. So we might be able to fit it all into, um, one. We'll see. We'll see when we get there. Um, all right. Oh, uh, by the way, you have another exam this week at the end of this week. And that's another thing that I realized that uh, might be confusing some people is that when I'm recording this, I am assuming, like, you know, I'm just talking as though it's the first day of the week. Um, Usually I'm recording it the day before or two days before, um, once in a while on the first day of that week. but then I think sometimes when you listen to it later and I say, you know, in uh, at the end of the week, there's a test um, that could get confusing. So when I use dates and, you know, I'm talking about things like that, um, go based on when the podcast went up. So if you're listening to it on the last day of our weeks in class. And then I say something is due in a week. That doesn't mean that it's due a week from when you're listening to it. It means it's due a week from when the audio lecture went up. So it's a little, it's a little different. It could be confusing, but, um, that's how I'm referring to it. I'll try to use dates. Um, that might kind of get rid of some of the confusion. So make it, uh, easier to figure out, you know, what's going on. But, the uh, the dates on Canvas are all correct. So if what I'm saying in the podcast seems not like it's not gelling with what's on Canvas, maybe take a look and see when the um, when the audio lecture was posted, and and hopefully that's what's going on. Although I wouldn't put it past myself to like say something crazy every once in a while. Um, it happens a lot. I just usually catch it when I'm editing. But uh, sometimes I don't. I'm, You know, it's totally possible that I wouldn't catch it when I'm saying it, and then I wouldn't catch it when I'm editing. I don't know. You know, speech errors, right? All right, so a couple things that are different about uh, this test is I have my lecture notes for this podcast are up for you on Canvas. Um, Also, and so the lecture notes are kind of like a study guide. If you you look at the two groups of lecture notes together, 
it's a pretty good study guide. I've added in, you know, questions of why things are relevant to the lecture notes. Um, and so that should help you with that. If you combine those lecture notes with the readings from the book, you should be really prepared for the exam. Then the extra readings, um, a few questions might come from them. But otherwise, um, it'll all be from my lecture notes and the book. If you focus on the key words and concepts that the book lays out at the very beginning of each chapter, that's a really important um, study tip as well. All right, so we'll start with um, kind of a maybe a sad, <laughs> kind of a sad story. Um, and, uh, and then we'll get the sad stories out of the way and move on to the happy stories about uh, violating conversational norms. But the sad story is uh, about cats. So um, we'll make it too graphic. But uh, anyway, these two researchers, Hubel and Wiesel, um, were looking at the activity in the visual cortex of uh, the cat. And what they found was if they used an electrode to look at single neurons, they noticed that those neurons were not active when the cat saw everything. The neurons were actually only active when the cat saw very specific uh, types of low-level stimuli. So uh, think about maybe a vertical line. When the cat sees a vertical line, some neurons go crazy. Whoa, vertical lines. Ho, ho. got to talk about this, right? But then if you have a diagonal line, that neuron that was going crazy for the vertical line does not fire as much. And instead, another neuron goes totally nuts about the diagonal line. It's like a diagonal line fanatic, right? It loves freaking diagonal lines. And this is true for a lot of different uh, types of stimuli. So they also used um, circles. And there were some neurons that went crazy for these rounded edges. Um, some neurons go crazy for types of movement. So horizontal movement, vertical movement, diagonal movement. They'll just like freak out for that. <laughs> and uh, so what this tells us about um, the way that at least cats make sense of the world, but presumably also humans and other animals, is that we're breaking down at a very low level. I mean, this is not something that you would know. This isn't something that's cognitively penetrable, right? Like you can't experience this happening. But at a low level, our brain is breaking down what we're seeing into, oh, that's an edge. Oh, that's a vertical edge specifically. And oh, that's a diagonal edge. And so then it's firing and it's reconstructing uh, what it's looking at to then present to our conscious brains um, the outside world, right? So we've got this weird kind of, uh, <laughs> if you're into science fiction, think about it maybe as um, the teleportation 
device in Star Trek, right? So, the transporter, right? So, what you have is the people get in this thing, and they say go, and they're broken down into, you know, I guess atoms or whatever, um, and then they're reassembled somewhere else. And in a way, that's kind of what's going on with the visual system, too. There is a world outside, and the eyes are kind of breaking it down into its component parts. And the brain is taking those component parts and stitching them back together so that our internal conscious mind has the same image as what's outside. So it's reconstructed that image. This is obviously important in reading because letters are made up of these distinctive features. That's what those uh, vertical lines, diagonal lines, curved edges, that's what those are called, distinctive features. So a square is not necessarily a distinctive feature. It has some distinctive features. It has two vertical lines and two horizontal lines. Those are the distinctive features. Um, but there are also some cells that look at uh, corners. So uh, a square might actually have more than just four distinctive features. It might have the two vertical lines, two horizontal lines, the corners. So there would be already eight distinctive features. Um, if you were talking about one of those cubes that you can draw, you know, where you do the two boxes and then just connect the lines, and you get those like 3D um, cube-looking things. Then you've got all those eight distinctive features for the square, and then you've got some diagonal lines, so there's some more distinctive features. You've got corners where each of the diagonal lines intersects with um, either a horizontal or a vertical line, so there's more distinctive features. And all these come together to form the perception of a cube. Or, in the case of a T, you have a horizontal line and a vertical line, and then also some corners in there as well. And those come together to form a T. Now, if you contrast that with a C, a C has, you know, it's got distinctive features of its own. It's, it's a curved um, edge, and that might be its only distinctive feature, but that curved edge doesn't exist for a T, and none of the distinctive features in the T exist for the C. So, if you were asked to find a T in a group of Cs, you would be really good at completing that task very fast, very thorough. You could find the T and no problem, right? But now think about what if you were trying to find an F in a field of E's? There's a lot of overlap in the distinctive features, right? There's a vertical line for an F. There's a vertical line for an E. There's two horizontal lines in an F, and there's three horizontal lines in an E, but then you've also got these 90-degree edges, so really, there's a lot of overlap between an F and an E. If you're looking for an F in a field of E's, it's not going to be as easy as finding a T in a field of C's. Why is this? Well, it's because of those distinctive features, right? You can think about it from a probability standpoint, if that's the way you like to think about these things, you can think that the probability that this thing I'm looking at, let's say it's a 
a curved C, there's zero probability that it's actually a T, right? There's no overlap. So everything I'm looking at that has a curved edge has zero probability that it's actually a T. As soon as I see that it's got a distinctive feature that does not uh, overlap with the T, I can discount it. It's very a very fast process then to look across all the C's, find the one T in there, the one thing that has distinctive features that looks like the T, look at it, say, yes, that's a T, and report that I've found the T. But if you're looking for the F in a C of E's, you look at an E, and if you didn't put your eyes right at that very bottom uh, horizontal line where the F doesn't have one, but the E does, then you're comparing all these features and noticing that there's a good percentage, there's a good probability that what you're looking at is either an E or an F. We've got a horizontal line at the top. Oh, well, could be either one. We've got a vertical line. No, we've got another horizontal line. We're still going. We've got some edges. We're still there. And then finally, when you get to the bottom, you finally find the one thing that's different between those letters. And you're able then to discount the E as just another E, and you're still looking for the F. You can also think about it if you like the attractor landscape model. You can think about it that every time you look at a C, there is no deformation of the attractor landscape. Nothing causes that attractor landscape to deform downwards. So the marble that's looking for a T doesn't ever fall into anything. Nothing about the C deforms the landscape. But almost everything about the E deforms the landscape. So your marble is trapped in this space looking at the E until you find that bottom line that pops the marble up out of that attractor well and goes on and searches for another one. And then probably, because you've got a field of E's, the marble falls into another E attractor well and then has to pop out of there before it finally settles into the F attractor well. So if you're thinking about it, it might even look like the surface of a golf ball with all the dimples. Every E is a dimple. And there's one F somewhere there that is a deeper dimple that you're trying to uh, get the marble to roll into. So there's a lot of different possibilities. If you look at the attractor landscape of the C's, the T in a field of C's, it's a completely flat landscape with one hole. If you're following a golf analogy, it'd be more like a putting green or something, I guess. So it's easy to get the marble to fall right into, oh, there's the T. During reading, then, I mean, you know, picking a T out of a field of C's is not really reading. But during reading, one of the things that we're probably doing is looking for those distinctive features. We find something that looks like a T. We say, ah, it's a T. And then we find some two um, vertical lines and one horizontal line. It's probably an H, right? And then we find one vertical line and three horizontal lines, and it's an E. And so we can reconstruct then that this is a capital T-H-E, the right? Or the, I guess, but it's capital. So maybe the, right? You know, like when you're texting somebody, you're like, it is 
the restaurant, so you capitalize all of it. But anyway, those are distinctive features. And that kind of shook out of the Hubel and Wiesel um, cat study. So again, those are single cell recordings from a cat's actual visual cortex, from its brain. Um, we could tell that different cells were active for these very um, simple features. And then from there, an accurate representation of the world is constructed. But cats aren't the only ones that have had to suffer in strange ways for visual experiments. Um, and this isn't nearly as sad as that story. I mean, right, because you have to cut the cat's skull open and then put an electrode in the brain. Um, presumably, the, well... You can assume that they survived if you want to, and maybe they did. But humans have also had, uh, well, nothing, like I said, nothing anywhere close to that, but definitely something uncomfortable done to them to look at um, how our eyes take in information. So in the 50s, it's kind of crazy that this happened so long ago, but 1953, um, a guy named Riggs, um, created these plastic uh, contacts. Actually, now that I think about it, I think they were actually glass. They were glass contacts, which is like, you know, not... It's a little dangerous, I suppose, if you fell. <laughs> you don't want to fall with glass contacts in your eye. Anyway, um, so you've got these glass contacts in. And the glass contacts are constructed in a way that they will shine a little beam of light onto a certain part of your eye. And the beam of light also has dark portions to it as well. So essentially what you get are um, a couple of little uh, thin dark lines and one large dark line. So you put these contacts in and then they ask you, well, what do you see? And, you know, most people see a couple little thin dark lines and one big thick dark line and maybe kind of a glowing uh, brightness around it from the light that's shining in. I mean, they can see through them, right? I, I should say that. It's not that they're completely opaque. They're clear. But uh, to get these dark lines to show up, they would kind of shoot a light at the edge of the contact. So there would be a little bright spot in addition to your typical visual field. So people would wear these contacts for a while. And the interesting thing about the contacts is that when you looked left, the contact would stay on your retina exactly where it was. So if you look left, the contact moves with you. I mean, it's not, if you wear contacts now, it's, you know, it's totally the same, you know, thing that you've got going on. You look to the left, it's not like your contacts stay facing forwards. Um, and so these would move with the eye as well. And in fact, the lines would stay in the same place on the retina. So the, the shadow that they would cast, where the light would come in, would stay in the same place on the retina. And it didn't take too long before the little thin lines started to disappear. People are looking around, reading, looking at things. The little thin lines are gone. And then 
a lot of times the large dark line would even start to disappear too. It would be kind of intermittent, it seemed like. So it would completely disappear for some people, and then all of a sudden it's back. Uh, and then it would disappear again. It's really interesting. You can actually do this yourself. I. <laughs> it, so this, this is a little TMI. But um, in my bathroom, I've got little tiles. They're not, they're not as big as, like, you know, the one-foot-by-one-foot one tiles in my, the rest of my house. They're maybe four-inch-by-four-inch four inch tiles on the ground. They're white, and they've got a darker grout um, between them. So if I'm on the toilet, I will just kind of stare at the ground and uh, stare in one particular place and allow the grout lines to just completely disappear. You could do this if you also have a <laughs> tile in your bathroom. Uh, you could do it if you have wall... I mean, I don't know how many people have wallpaper anymore, but if you have wallpaper, you can do it that way as well. Anyway, if you just stare in one place, the lines will start to disappear. It'll look like you have one solid tile floor. But then you can also experience the same thing. Like the lines will just pop back in seemingly at random. Like try not to move your eyes because as soon as you move your eye, and this is going to be an important thing in a second, but as soon as you move your eye, all the lines are back immediately. So try not to move your eyes, but you'll notice that lines will disappear and they'll kind of come back and then they'll disappear again. And that's kind of what's going on with this large uh, dark line in the contacts. The little lines are have completely disappeared. So when you're reading, there's something called a saccade. Well, and this actually, I should say, it's not just when you're reading. It's when you're looking at absolutely anything. You will make saccades. Saccade is French for jerk. So I guess the next time you're driving, you can roll down your window and shout saccade um, at the people in front of you. But anyway... Uh, like the guy that cuts you off. But in this context, it means like a little jerky eye movement. And what happens is the eye is moving from one focal point to another. A lot of times you don't even really know that you're doing this, but somehow you're taking in visual information, right? So if you look at a person's face, your eyes will saccade between their eyes their mouth, their nose, their cheek, down to their chin, back up to their eyes. And your eyes just kind of saccade all over the place and take in a lot of information. Now, why this is important is because if you stare at one place on your tile floor, things start to disappear. If you wear contacts where lines are in one place, they'll start to disappear. So when you're looking at something, especially text, which is made up of mostly lines. If you're not saccading, things will start to disappear. So what you see is that people will move from the start of one word and they'll kind of saccade out a couple words and maybe saccade back a few words and then go back to the word they're on and jump around within there. What that's doing is allowing the visual system to take in a lot of information. It's allowing the visual system to see the distinctive features that make up each one of those letters and then start to decode all of those distinctive features into letters or words or sometimes even phrases.
So that's what's going on with saccades and contacts and cat studies. That's, that's all that. That's how that all contributes to reading. But once we've done that, once we've already got the words in somehow, our eyes have looked at the distinctive features and now we're starting to put words into the brain. How do we recognize the words? There's a few different effects that are at work. One of those is the frequency effect. The frequency effect is, you know, pretty much just what it sounds like. The more frequent a word shows up, the easier it is to recognize it. So we'll talk about the word the uh, in more detail in just a moment. Um, But it is one of the most frequent words in the English language. Um, Gosh, it might be the most frequent, but I'm now drawing a blank between the and a. Which one is more frequent? Anyway, one of those. But they're both little words. Both of them are going to be very close to the top uh, most frequent word in the English language. They are words that you'll be able to identify very quickly. Um, But again, that... There is a slight caveat to that um, that we'll talk about in a second. But say a word like, what if you're a, what if you're a chef, right? And you're looking at the word bake. That comes up very frequently. So for your for your job, right? So it'd be a word that you should recognize very quickly, and usually very accurately, right? But maybe a word like carburetor, if you're a a chef, doesn't come up very often. And let's assume that you don't have any car-related hobbies either. So you're a chef, and all you do is cook and watch movies that don't have anything to do with cars, right? So you see the word carburetor, and to you, this is an infrequent word. It might take you a little bit longer to recognize the word carburetor, uh, and you might confuse it more often with other words, too. So that's the frequency effect. You might expect somebody who is a mechanic who gets all of their food from a fast food joint and doesn't have, you know, any hobbies related to cooking, um, carburetor would be a very high-frequency word to them. They would see it. They'd know it immediately. Um, They wouldn't confuse it with other words very often. But the word bake uh, might take a little bit longer to decode, and they might get it confused as they're quickly reading through a passage. They might think it says cake, uh, because that might be more relevant to them than baking something. I know it certainly is for me. If I can have a, a cake for free without having to do any of the work, I would much rather have that easy cake than making one. Also, I'm not very good at baking, so certainly some free cake that just falls out of the sky will be better than what I can put together. Anyway, um, that's the frequency effect. So the more frequent a word is, the quicker and easier and more accurately it will be to decode. If you look at the frequency of all the words in the English language, Uh, like how often they're used, right? Or what 
what is the chance that any given word will be this word is usually the way that it's done. Um, you'll find something called Zip's Law. Like, it's Z-I-P-F. Zip. It's a funky word. It doesn't even look like it should be a word or a name or anything. But anyway, this guy, Zippy, realized that if you plot out the words, how frequently different words are used in the English language, it comes out in something called calls it comes out in something called a logarithmic scale. So what that means is the first most used word is ten times more likely to be used than the tenth most used word. And it is a hundred times more likely to be used than the twentieth most used word. It increases by powers of ten. This isn't just true for English. This is true for most languages. Spanish, German, uh, Japanese, these are ones that the Zipf's Law has been, um, you know, found for each one of these languages, where they have one word that's used very often. The next word after that is also used very often. And after that, you have diminishing returns on how often a word is used. So you have one word that's used extraordinarily often, but one is used 10 times less. And then the next uh, increment up, they're used 100 times less frequently. And the next increment up, they're used 1,000 times less frequently. This is a logarithmic scale. That's Zipf's Law. Um, there's a picture of that in the show notes. You can kind of take a look at what some of the most frequent words used are. I think it'll make a little bit more sense when you actually look at it. You'll notice that the words that are very frequently used are words that are articles, things that are going to pertain to a lot of other words, right? The pertains to a lot of things. You can have the word the three or four or five times in one sentence. Five might be excessive, but certainly you can have three. Um, but if you look at a word like jump, how many times are you going to have jump in one sentence? Once, and I mean even then, you're not going to have it in every sentence. But I would suspect that if you looked at, open whatever book is next to you, if you're, if you're next to a book, preferably get a, like a fun book, like a novel, right? You know what? I'm going to do this as well. Hang on. Okay, I left the security of my closet to find the book that I'm currently reading. Um, which my friends convinced me that I would enjoy it, but I haven't gotten too far into it yet. It's The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. If there's anyone who has read this, give me your input. Did you like it? What I'm going to do is I'm going to look at each sentence in a couple paragraphs of chapter two and see if it has a the in it. Okay. You can do this yourself if you have a copy of the book. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why you'd want... I mean, I'm not lying to you. But anyway... You can also check it out. So, first page of chapter two, the first sentence has the word the in it once. The second sentence has the word the in it once. The third sentence has the word the in it twice. The fourth sentence has the word the in it twice. The fifth has it once. And the sixth, which is the start of a new paragraph, actually doesn't have the word the. Huh. 
Go figure. Seventh sentence, no the. Eighth, no the. The ninth has the word the once. The tenth has it once. Eleventh has it once. So almost every time you see the word the once, sometimes you have it twice. I didn't count any that had it three times, but I would be willing to guess that the number of times there was a sentence that didn't have the uh, is balanced by the number of times there was a sentence with the word the twice. So it seems like you've got the word the once per sentence on average. If you think that... um, well, a lot of the very commonly used words are short words, little words like it, the, a. If we do the same exercise with it, um, I've got one sentence with it and then no it, no it, uh, four, nothing, five, nothing, uh, six, nothing, seven, nothing, eight, one, nine, no, ten, no, eleven, one. So moving from the to it, we had about 11 instances of the and three instances of it. So you can see how these are like decreasing in frequency. If we move to something like day or horse or something like that, which are all words that were in that book, in that just portion, they're all mentioned once or twice. Um, And if you look across the entire book, The would be in there a lot. It would probably be in there a lot, but not nearly as much as the. And horse, probably not a whole lot. It seemed to be a focus of that particular portion, but doubtful that it would... I mean, it's not a book about just a horse, right? So you would expect that they're not just going to talk about a horse the whole time. If that's the way the book goes, I feel like I won't like it if it's just about people talking about a horse. Hopefully there's something else going on. Anyway, that's Zipf's Law. The regularity effect, which is going to interact with the frequency effect, just says that is a word pronounced in a regular way. So regular in a way that you would expect it to be pronounced. Um, The word boot is a regular word. It's pronounced the way that you think it should. Uh, Boot loot. Soot, however, is an irregular word. So irregular words are take a little bit more time to process, and they're not processed always as accurately as regular words. So in that way, they kind of act like non-frequent words. You would expect the word boot to be processed quickly and identified accurately. You'd expect the word soot to be processed a little bit more slowly and not as accurately. Now, of course, we're all expert readers. I mean, we've been doing this pretty much forever. But when we say slower or faster or not as accurate, we mean that if there's going to be an error in what you're reading, it would more be more likely to happen with soot than with boot. And we're talking about something on the order of milliseconds here for how long it takes to process that word. So it's not a long process. We're not talking about, you know, kids um, in first grade or kindergarten learning how to say these words. We're talking about us, and we're talking about expert readers. 
We're also talking about very short, 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 short timescales. Okay, but I did say that the regularity effect interacts with the frequency effect. And what I mean by that is a regular word will be identified quickly and accurately across the board, no interaction there necessarily. Is it a regular word that is frequent or a regular word that's infrequent? It's still going to be pretty fast. So very frequent regular words are processed very quickly. But also very frequent irregular words are processed very quickly. So soot, if you're like a chimney sweep, will probably be processed very quickly. It's your entire job is dealing with soot, right? So you wouldn't really have the regularity effect crop up there. But irregular words and not very frequent words will show the deficit in processing time and be processed less accurately. So you can see that frequency might be a little bit more important than regularity, possibly, because if you see an irregular word a lot, well, now it's not really an irregular word. It becomes a frequent word, right? In a way. It's still irregular, but you're processing it quickly because you're it's something that you see often. So it's not too far outside of your your world, outside of your wheelhouse. But again, just to reiterate, an irregular word that is infrequent is going to get the downside of all of these effects, right? That's going to be a word that takes a long time to process, and it's going to be less accurate. There's one more, and that's the neighborhood effect. This one is a little hard to understand, possibly. So the neighborhood effect is how many words, like the word that you're looking at, are there when you change just one letter. So the word book... A neighbor of book would be look. A neighbor of book would be boot. A neighbor of book would be cook. Right? So you'd think like most of the things that rhyme, um, there's some that wouldn't rhyme because you're changing things in the middle. Bonk is a neighbor of book. So these are all the neighbors of book. You can come up with a word like chameleon. How many neighbors are there for chameleon? None, probably, where you're just changing one letter and, and that's how many neighbors it has. Chameleon, I'm pretty sure there's no neighbors. If you can think of one, definitely let me know. Um, anyway, so that's the neighborhood. That's not the neighborhood effect, but that is the neighborhood. That's where that word lives, right? Those are its neighbors. Chameleon doesn't have any neighbors. Book has a lot of neighbors. Burr. Like uh, like you might get off of a, some cactuses have little burrs or some weeds have little burrs. There's not a whole lot of words that will go along with that. Well, burn would. Um, cur, like a dog. Other than that, I'm not coming up with anything right off the top of my head. So book has a lot more neighbors than burr. Now the effect, the neighborhood effect, this is where it gets maybe a little confusing. You might think that when there's more neighbors, you're slower to process that word. 
because maybe the other words that are near it kind of fall in and get processed instead and create inaccuracies. That is not true. Words with larger neighborhoods are processed more quickly and more accurately than words with smaller neighborhoods. So burr would not be processed as quickly as book. You could think if you like the attractor landscape way of thinking, then I kind of think about it like the more neighbors there are, the more they're pushing down this landscape. Because as you're reading it, you're kind of building up the number of distinctive features, right? If you see, you saccade over the words and you see that there's O-O-K, but maybe you missed the B in one of your saccades. So you start activating look and book and cook and all these things. Another saccade might reveal that the word starts with B-O. <laughs> B-O. Um, so if the word starts with B-O, you might be activating book, boat, um, bowl, all sorts of things like this, right? So the attractor landscape is deepening. The more you saccade, the closer you get. Some of them go away and some of them deepen. And then you're left with book. And there you are. Your marble has fallen into book. But if you think about burr, as you saccade over, there's not a whole lot to deform the attractor landscape. If you didn't see all of burr, you might be kind of confused. Maybe it doesn't really look like a word that you know. So nothing is really deforming the attractor landscape. As you get closer, it might deform into burr, and usually it does. But sometimes it doesn't, or it takes longer to deform the attractor landscape. And so there's your processing deficit, your processing time deficit. And maybe you read it wrong uh, because as you're saccading over, there's not a whole lot of other words that are activating for you. You just kind of use some top-down processes and think, maybe, these, maybe they meant burn? Maybe they meant something else? And so you might put a different word on top of that without the marble going into the correct attractor well. So the neighborhood effect is going to interact with the frequency effect. So if you have a word with not a lot of neighbors, like chameleon, let's say you're a, you work at the zoo and uh, in the reptile habitat. Chameleon has no neighbors, but it's a very frequent word for you. So you're probably going to be very quickly at identifying it, and it's not going to get confused with other words because it's frequent. But for that mechanic that we were talking about who's really good at knowing carburetor, but maybe doesn't know anything about reptiles, chameleon now is not going to come up very quickly or very accurately for that person because it's infrequent. Uh, it's irregular because the CH doesn't make a ch sound. It makes a k sound. And it has no neighbors. So chameleon is going to be much more difficult for that uh, mechanic than it is for the person who works at the zoo. Now, what about the word the? There's something else about it. Remember how I had you count the number of T's in that passage? Go back and look at where you circled the T. Now look for instances of the word the. Did you miss any T's in the word the? I bet you did. A lot of people do. You might not have missed all of them, but if you did, don't feel bad. 
but you probably missed at least one in the word the. Now there's an interesting, I was going to say problem. It's not really a problem with the word the. There's an interesting effect of the word the. It's called unitization. What that is, is the word the is so frequent, as we talked about, it's one of the most frequent words, if not the most frequent word in the English language. But it also just signifies things to us, right? So it goes along with other parts of phrases. It's never just the by itself. We're never talking about the. It's never the subject. It's never the object. It's never the verb. You can't the something, right? It's just there to help other things. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if I missed some of the thes when I was trying to count them, uh, when, when I was looking at the name of the wind. Thus, unitization says that thus are going to be compounded with the whatever it is they're talking about. Right? So if you're saying like the book and you're circling all the T's, you're kind of thinking about that portion of of what you're reading and circling the T's as book. And you're missing the the. Now, if it said something like the teacher, you probably got the T in teacher for sure. Um, but you might have missed the T in the. Now, you might be thinking, well, maybe it's because we pronounce the with a T-H and teacher is pronounced with a hard T, T. Could be, except that this has been extensively studied. There's a lot of different things. Is it that the T in the is leading the word? Is that why we don't see it? Is it that it makes a TH sound and not a T sound? Is it the shortness of the word? Is it all these other things? A lot of things have been tested. And what they found out is it's not... The fact that the T comes in the front, because words like teacher, people will recognize the T. It's not the TH sound, because words like theater, people will get the T in theater. We seem to know that a TH sound starts with a T, so if you're looking for Ts, you'll find the T. It's not the length of the word, because if you use thy instead of the, people will get the T in thy. It's something specific about the. It's something specific about its part of speech and the way that we use it in the English language. And the fact of that is unitization, again, like I said. The seems to go with whatever it's talking about. The jumping man. The book. And you think about it as a jumping man. You think about it as a book, or you think about it as jumping man and book. And the kind of goes away, even in the middle of reading it. It goes away. There's another thing I want you to take a look at, and most likely, um, you read. You should have read this in the beginning of the show notes. Did you notice that there were two thes in that phrase? You might have, because I, I mean, how often do I just have you read like read this sentence? So you might have noticed it. But a lot of people don't recognize that there are two thes in the sentence. There are. And, you know, some of that is because you're doing that same thing. You're putting the the with whatever it's talking about. And you're not processing it as the. What's really crazy about this is if you did notice it, 
I'm willing to bet that you looked at it and you felt like something might have been wrong. So you looked at it again and you couldn't tell what it was. And then finally you said, oh, there's two thes. I really doubt that anybody saw it right off the bat and said, oh, there's two thes. Totally weird. Maybe. Maybe you did. But I don't think most of you did. So that's unitization. And then the last thing is how do we read? I mean, we've talked about the, but there's so many other words. But how do we read those words? Like, so do we go from when we see a TH, we'll stick with the for a second, but when we see a TH, do we go, oh, TH, that makes a th sound. And the E, oh, that usually makes an eh sound. So the, the, and then that becomes the, and that's how we think of it as the. Do we do the same thing with theater? It's a TH, so it's th, and then it's an EA, so that's E. Um, except that's an irregular one because it's theater and not theater, which you would think. If it followed, right, the <laughs> pronunciation rules of meat, uh, it would be theater. And if meat followed the pronunciation rules of theater, it would be meat, meat, meat. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, that is one way that we could read. Certainly, it's a way that we read words that we are not used to. We'll look at them and we'll kind of piecemeal them together and then figure out that it must say theater. But is that the only way we read? Or is there also a part of our brain that looks at the word the, perhaps, and knows it as the word the? Do we really need to break it into different graphemes? And then say, oh, it is th, uh, it must be the, and then think about it as the, or is it so well learned, because we see it all the time, that we can just look at these three letters and instantly know that it's the. Yes, there's good evidence that we do that too. In fact, there's good evidence that it's a dual process model. There's good evidence that we do have a lot of words, especially frequent ones, that we can look at and have direct access to that stored word. But infrequent ones, or completely new words, or irregular words, might need to go from grapheme to phoneme. And that might be the crux of a lot of these different effects. It might be these two different processes um, taking effect. If it's a regular word, there's a lot of information that we have, and maybe we can kind of take a look at the word and assume that it's pronounced that way, or that it's that word, that meat is meat. That's the dual process model of reading. And that seems to be uh, the one that most reading theorists, the one that most psycholinguists um, hold to be true. Not everybody, but most. Okay, so what if I said the sentence, the prime number few? Does that make any sense to you? Are you trying to figure out what prime number I'm talking about? Like 7, 11, which one of these? And how does that relate to few? 
If you are, that's normal. Um, but actually, if you think about it again, let me say it with a little bit more intonation. The prime number few. Now you're probably thinking about it a little differently, right? With a little bit more intonation, you know that I'm talking about the prime, people who are in their prime or really good at something. There are not very many of them, so they number few. But if you read this or if you heard it without intonation, the prime number few, then you might be thinking about a prime number. Okay, what about the old man, the boat? Are you thinking about one old man and his boat? Maybe. I mean, especially when you're not reading it, you can assume that I have like a semicolon between man and the, for the old man, semicolon, the boat. Like it's a list or something. But actually, if you maybe say it with different intonation, the old man, the boat. Does that help make sense of it? It's, I think it's a little bit more difficult than the prime number one. So it's like the old, like the old people man the boat. You throw people in there, it works a little bit differently. The old people man the boat. It's a boat full of old people, and they're the ones that are doing all the rigging, right? Um, I will post a link to what this always makes me think of. Um, <laughs> on canvas. Here's one last one that I'll leave you with. The man who hunts ducks out on the weekend. What do you think's going on there? Did you get confused? These work a little bit better when you read them. So these are called garden path sentences. You probably saw um, a few of them in the text if you've read it already. If you haven't, you will see them. Um... A lot of them are made a little bit more... A lot of these sentences become garden path sentences. They become confusing because they're leaving out something called relative clauses. And this is something like who or that or which, something like that. So if we were to say, it is the old who manned the boat then you have no ambiguity there. If we said, it is the prime who number few, and that would keep the sentence order intact, but you're adding in these relative clauses, and that helps disambiguate um, the sentence. A lot of times, these come up in newspaper headlines. We've already had a, a, quite a few of you have posted some responses to some of the funny ones that, uh, that I found on Yellow Dig. Um, and a lot of times, you know, they want to cut out words, extraneous words from headlines. So they'll cut out things like the, and maybe they'll cut out things like that. And they're top-downing what they mean. They know what they mean. They know that the prime number few makes sense to them because they know what they're trying to say. So you can cut it out, and they're like, yeah, yeah, the prime number few. Cool, great. Publish it, Right? But to us who have no top-down information, we're bottom-upping the whole thing. We're kind of left in the dark and we're like, what do you mean the prime number few? Few is not a number. That's ridiculous. Um, 
Are you talking about two? This is how these garden path sentences kind of crop up. Now, a lot of times if you're saying them, the prosody will help disambiguate the sentence, right? So the prime, number few, there's a little bit of a pause there, and that helps you figure out what the sentence is about. But if I put a comma in after prime, it's not grammatically correct, right? I could do it, and you might do it if you were trying to direct somebody to speak in a certain way, not something that was going to be actually published, uh, to make sure that they said something with the pause in the right place. But it's not grammatically correct to have a comma after prime. The prime, number few, it does, doesn't, it's not a correct place to, uh, to put a comma. So it's difficult in writing. We have these pauses and intonations in actual spoken language that don't have a analog in written language, or at least not a grammatical analog in written language. You could add the relative clauses back in, but sometimes that doesn't totally work, right? So we talked, man, of quite a few weeks ago about... Uh, that video, the girl saw the alien with the telescope. Who has the telescope, right? Is it the alien or is it the girl? Did the girl look through the telescope to see the alien? Did the girl see the alien and the alien was holding a telescope for some reason? So that doesn't really help disambiguate that sentence. That's not exactly a garden path sentence. It can be. In a way. But a garden path sentence essentially is is something that, by the way that the words are constructed, it's leading you up one expectation and then, blunk, you're popped out of that expectation and left kind of in a confused state. So the prime number, that is a very well-known phrase. Like, even if you don't really know what prime numbers are, you've certainly heard of them, Right. So the prime number, and you're like, okay, a prime number is a thing. So we're talking about a noun. And then few, uh, oh, that that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Pops right out of it. And now I'm confused. So the, the girl saw the alien with the telescope doesn't make a whole lot of I mean, it makes sense. It's fine. It doesn't have the garden path... Um, problem or structure, I guess, whichever way you want to think about it. Um, in English, we will do something to this sentence to make it make sense. So the alien saw, or no, the girl saw the alien with the telescope. In English, we are more likely to tack the telescope on with the last noun. So it's the alien that had the telescope. The girl saw the alien with the telescope. Now, this is without other information. Because to me, in that sentence, the girl saw the alien with the telescope kind of implies that the girl had the telescope because a telescope, right, you're like looking way far out at something. And then she might have seen an alien, like, I don't know, on the moon or whatever. So... 
there's some information that I'm using. I'm top-downing this information. I, I know what a telescope is. I know how it's used. I know you usually use it to look at things out in space, and an alien, you know, is, is out in space. And so the girl saw the alien with the telescope. To me, sounds like the girl has the telescope. But again, that's top-down. There's other information. Without any information like that, English speakers will usually tack that hanging clause onto the end, whatever came last. And that is the late closure principle. Late closure just means that we want to attach anything that's hanging to the current clause. So with the telescope is kind of hanging. We're not really sure where it goes. But we are currently in the clause, the alien. And so we'll attach the telescope to the alien. That's late closure. But as the book points out, this is not true in Spanish. Again, without other information, which you could use to top down it, Spanish speakers are more likely to attach the hanging clause to the first object or the first, well, yeah, the first subject rather. So the girl would have the telescope without other information. So late closure doesn't really apply in that case. Until you move into three independent clauses, and then late closure starts applying for both English speakers and Spanish speakers. So there's something... Well, remember, humans are lazy. We've talked about that. Pretty much everything that we're talking about and how do we read and how do we do these things is capitalizing on the fact that it's going to be whatever is most easy for us to do. Most probable, whatever's going to deform the attractor landscape the most, that's where we are. So the late closure principle is easiest. We have to hold less stuff in working memory to be able to use late closure, right? If we were doing early closure... That meant we'd have to hold the entire sentence, no matter how long it was, in working memory to see if there was anything hanging at the end of the sentence that we would need to attach to that first clause. That's a lot of stuff in working memory. 7 plus or minus 2, or 4 plus and minus 1, depending on how you're looking at it. Certainly there are going to be a lot more words than that in some sentences. So late closure is capitalizing on laziness and ease. Now, in Spanish, putting the hanging portion of the sentence on the first um, clause isn't as easy, right? I mean, you're having to put more stuff into working memory. But presumably, uh, there's something about the structure of, of language, uh, of Spanish, and presumably this was done with um, Spanish-speaking populations from Mexico and not Spanish-speaking populations from Spain, it is entirely possible that the convention in Mexico is different than the convention in Spain, which could be different than the convention in Cuba, which could be different than the convention elsewhere in the Spanish-speaking world. So it's possible that it's um, a cultural thing and not necessarily a language-based thing, but that remains to be seen. Anyway, there's some sort of heuristic 
that uh, the Spanish speakers in the study have that show or that tells them that the hanging clause is going to go, the hanging portion is going to go with the first clause. Then when they get overburdened with three or four of them, they become lazy like everybody else and start attaching it to the last one. So something about language or culture, some sort of convention says the hanging portion goes with the first clause, but when now there's more than two clauses, they go back to the easy route, just like everybody else. And that also makes me think of minimal attachment. Minimal attachment is going to want to use the least number of nodes. If you think about a syntactic tree, it's going to use the least number of nodes to still make the sentence well-formed. So the tree will be smaller. A smaller tree is easier to understand. Humans are lazy, so they want to use the least number of nodes possible, right? That's minimal attachment. And then the last thing that I want to talk about that the book doesn't talk about is an interactive approach. Now these, late closure and minimal attachment, are both bottom-up processes, right? The, the girl saw the alien with the telescope. You put telescope with alien because of late closure. It's a bottom-up process. But remember, I said that I feel like it should go with the girl because the alien is out in space and you're using a telescope to look at things out in space. So the girl used the telescope to see the alien. That's a top-down process. This is called an interactive approach. So yeah, we use light closure. Yeah, we use minimal attachment. But there's also things that we know that we can top down into the sentence and help figure it out that way. Maybe we're halfway through a book and we know everything that's happened in the first half of that book. We can use it to top down a sentence that if you gave it to anybody who hadn't read the book would be ambiguous. But to us who are halfway through the book, it's not ambiguous because we can top down what the sentence means. That's an interactive approach. And, uh, you know, when you're doing these studies, linguistic studies, you try to control for a lot of things. You come up with sentences that people have never seen that don't pertain to anything, and you try to see how they make sense of them. And the only thing they can do is use bottom-up processing because they don't pertain to anything. So sometimes that doesn't accurately get portrayed in a lot of this research. The top-down Processing doesn't get uh, as much airtime as it should because the studies have to be well-controlled. And I mean, you know, that's not saying that they're wrong. It, you do have to have well-controlled studies. But at the same time, it's an incomplete picture. It's not an ecologically valid look at how people are actually reading. Ecologically valid, if you're not sure, just means that that is how people function in the real world. A lot of psychology studies, a lot of even medical studies are done with all these things held constant and we can find a result, but that doesn't match how people actually live in the world. Uh, usually we have top-down information. Not always. Some of us have less top-down information than others. And I'm not, that's not a dig at people who are dumb. 
I actually feel like that's a dig at like people who are like me who just kind of like when someone says something to them that they weren't expecting, they don't try to use top-down information because they think, what the heck are you even talking about? Like I could top-down this and I could try to guess, but then I might be wrong. So maybe like they've decided not to top-down anything because... I will just be confused and ask you what the hell you're talking about. Um, okay, so that's the end of the stuff for the for this chapter. We will talk about, well, we'll talk about conversational norms more soon, but I do want to talk about them now, too, because I'm going to give you your assignment, your conversational norms assignment that I've been excited about forever. So some conversational norms, and there's links to uh, many more conversational norms on Canvas. Read those. They will be on the test and the quiz. So know them, even though we're going to also talk about it later. Know them for, for now. But some of them are the distance that we use to speak in the United States. One of the um, readings that you'll have talks about how in the United States, if you put your arm out, you can put your thumb into somebody's ear. Like that's the, that's the distance away from someone that you're speaking. That's how comfortable we are with being close to somebody that we're talking to. And that seems about right to me if I look out. I would talk to somebody about that close, maybe a little further away. In England, it's a little bit further away. In Latin cultures, it's a little closer. You'd be able to put your hand around the back of their head. So this is a conversational norm that would be interesting to break. What if you're talking to your friends and you are just too close? See what they do. That's interesting. Eye contact is another thing. In the United States, we like eye contact, but not too much. It's a little freaky, right? In other cultures, they don't like eye contact at all. So you could choose one or the other. You could talk to somebody and not make any eye contact, see what they do. Or you could talk to somebody and make direct eye contact the whole time and see how absolutely weird that is. One other one that I was thinking is, uh, though this, I mean, like, you have to do this with friends that you know pretty well, because you might get, like, people pretty upset with you. But it seems in the United States we don't really like touching while we're talking. Once in a while, a high five, a uh, pat on the back or something like that is okay. But um, in other cultures... A lot of touching is appropriate in just a normal conversation. So, like, maybe walk up to your friends and start, like, leaning on them, put your arm around them, talk to them, or, like, touch their arm or something for much longer than you think you should and, and try to see what um, <laughs> see what's going on. This assignment is going to be up for you uh, now. Though it's going to be kind of a long one. So the due date is not one week. It is not due at the same time that your exam is. 
You're going to have two weeks to do this. Um, what I want you to do, and there's going to be more information about this on Canvas, but what I want you to do is write up what conversational norm you broke. Try to look online for a little bit more information about that norm, specifically yours, uh, and then write about how you broke it and what whoever you broke it towards did um, as a result. That should be... I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I'll do it too. It's, so it's not you that's just... it's You know, you're not the only ones that are going to be weirding people out. I'll do it too. Uh, and I'll... I'll let you know how it goes. Okay. Um, so remember, there's going to be, there are study guides online. Look at those. There are quizzes for chapter 9 and 10, two different ones. Uh, and then there will be a test for chapters 9 and 10. Um, well, you've got readings and quizzes and all sorts of things to do. So I good luck with this week. Good luck on your exam. And I will talk to you soon.